Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Due to the graphic nature of this case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder, assault, drug abuse, and sexual content that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Magazines! Magazines for sale! Read about the lies of the stars. Peek behind the curtain of the Via Marguda, Rome's nighttime playground for the beautiful, wealthy, and famous. Good morning, miss. Cigarettes, please. And perhaps a magazine to read? This one has the details of the wedding of Tyrone Power and Linda Christian. They say his divorce to Annabella was finalized mere moments before they tied the knot. I don't need to read about the lives of stars. I'm going to be one. Oh, so. You're one of these young beauties who dreams of life on the silver screen. I have just the thing for you. Atualita? (laughs) I've never heard of it. It's brand new. And the story inside, unlike anything you've read before, it tells of another young lady like yourself. A girl from a strong Roman family, the daughter of a modest carpenter, who sought to change her place in life. She was lured by the siren call of La Dolce Vita, but she found a violent death on the shores of Capacota. Capacota? You know the area? My fiancé owns property near there. I'll... I'll take one of these. Magazines! Magazines for sale! In the 1950s, Rome was the most glamorous city in the world. A magnet for celebrities, artists, wealthy playboys, and international royals. Tales of their escapades and lurid affairs filled the city's colorful magazine stands. But in the fall of 1953, one story would eclipse them all to capture the attention of Roman public. Unusually, this story did not concern the affair of a Hollywood starlet, but the fate of a girl from a middle-class Roman family. Authorities had ruled her death an accident, but the public was convinced that she had been murdered. The hunt for the culprit would soon unveil a seedy underworld of sex, drugs, and corruption that had long existed beneath the ancient city's surface. This is Unsolved Murders, true crime stories, the ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. This is our first episode on Wilma Montesi, an Italian woman whose lifeless body was discovered on a private beach outside of Rome in 1953. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. 
Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Chabella, is there a better proof of God's majesty than the seashore at dawn? Hmm, what is that? The year was 1953. Rome was emerging from a tumultuous decade of near-constant upheaval. After the fall of Mussolini's fascist regime, the city had been occupied by the Nazis in 1943 and then the Allied forces in 1944. In the aftermath of World War II, as Italy struggled to establish a democracy, Romans sought to recover a sense of peace and normalcy. Peace was also the object sought by Fortunato Bettini on the morning of Saturday, April 11th. Hoping to enjoy a quiet breakfast, the young laborer made his way down the shoreline near the fishing village of Torvionica. But Fortunato's morning was anything but normal. While making his way down to the beach, he spotted a dark shape lying at the edge of the water. As he moved closer, his blood ran cold. Miss! Miss! Are you all right? Oh, oh my God. She's dead. It was the body of a young woman. She was stretched out on the sand, face down, with her head toward the ocean, partially submerged in water. The woman's shoes, skirt, stockings, and suspender belt were missing. This still left her mostly clothed, as her long underpants descended just below her knees. Her yellow and green checkered coat was buttoned around her neck and had been pulled over her head by the waves. Fortunato raced at once to the nearest police station, telling everyone he met along the way about the body on the beach. A a woman, dead, on the beach, just down that way. You won't miss her. He returned a short while later with two police officers and a doctor from a nearby airbase. They had to push their way through the large crowd of onlookers that had formed around the body. After examining the body, the doctor determined that the young woman had drowned approximately 18 hours earlier on the afternoon of Friday, April 10th. She would remain on the beach for the next few hours, covered only by a simple white sheet while the police waited for a magistrate to visit the site. The crowd of onlookers remained, growing throughout the day as more beachgoers stopped by to see the cause of the commotion. None recognized the young woman. At 8.30 p.m., police officers realized that since it was the weekend, no magistrate would be coming. The body was moved to a mortuary in Rome. Over the coming weeks, months, and years, The public and the authorities would struggle to piece together the events that had led to the young woman's death. Attempts to work out what had happened inevitably led back to the afternoon of Thursday, April 9th. And number 76, Via Taliamento, an elegant apartment building overlooking a busy residential street in East Rome. On the third floor, in a cramped three-room apartment, lived the Montessi family. Rodolfo Montesi, the family patriarch, was a moderately successful carpenter who specialized in building furniture for local cinemas. His wife Maria was a stout woman with a reputation for fiery emotional outbursts. They had three children, 
Wanda, age 24, Wilma, age 21, and Sergio, 16. Maria's primary pastimes involved caring for her elderly parents, who lived in the apartment's second bedroom, and monitoring the marital prospects of her two daughters. Wanda was the most amenable to her mother's prying, and the most in need of it. She was not as thin or as pretty as her younger sister. At 21, Wilma's dark hair, large dimpled cheeks, and slender figure made her a popular figure at the dances their mother brought them to. These dances were practically the only opportunities the sisters had to attract potential suitors. Rudolfo had not allowed his daughters to work, and Maria was watchful for any situation that could allow their chastity to be called into question. Wilma's personality and tastes beyond this point are the subject of controversy. Her parents would later insist that she was a shy, timid girl who hardly ever left the family home. Her friends and acquaintances painted a different picture. They described a young woman who smoked, wore expensive clothes and jewelry, and fought frequently with her mother. Like many young Roman women, she was obsessed with the movies and dreamt of trading her monotonous existence for the life of an actress. Though she lacked connections in the film world, she managed to secure a small, uncredited role in the 1952 film Ergastolo. That same year, Wilma met Angelo Giuliani at a dance. The young man billed himself as a business owner and a wine merchant, facts that made him particularly appealing to Wilma's mother. It would soon come out that Angelo's winemaking was no more than a hobby. He was, in fact, no more than a humble policeman. While it was not the match Maria had hoped for, she was willing to settle. Angelo proposed shortly after their first meeting. Wilma accepted, and the wedding was set for December of 1953. And while the romance had started quickly, there are signs that it soon stalled. Wilma and Angelo saw each other irregularly and had to be accompanied by a family member whenever they went out. Wilma may have told friends that she was growing tired of her fiancé, and believed him to be overly jealous. Her concerns were validated when Angelo got in a fistfight with a co-worker who had made a lewd comment about Wilma. As punishment, his superiors transferred him to a city outside of Rome. After that point, he and Wilma saw each other only once a month. On March 3rd, he took her to the public gardens of Villa Borghese on their first date, unaccompanied by a member of Wilma's family. Angelo shocked Wilma by aggressively grabbing her and trying to kiss her. Wilma wasn't having it. When she pushed him away, Angelo became embarrassed and angry. He left in a huff and didn't visit the next month. Whether or not Wilma considered their relationship to be permanently damaged, they would not see each other again. On the afternoon of April 9th, Maria and Wanda went out to see a film. Wilma said that she didn't like the lead actress and opted to stay behind. Around 7 p.m., the women returned to the apartment. The lights were all off. They assumed that Wilma had either laid down for a nap or had gone out for a walk. Soon, the rest of the family arrived. Dinner was always held at 8.30 sharp, but by 9 o'clock, Wilma had still not appeared. Where is Wilma? Wanda, go tell your sister to hurry. Dinner is getting cold. Yes, Papetto. So inconsiderate making us wait while her dinner gets cold. 
She's been closed up in that room ever since we got back from the cinema. Did you have another argument? Of course not. I merely suggested that her smoking and those clothes she wears might give people the wrong impression. I swear, Rodolfo, that girl is ruining herself with her own two hands. She's not here. What? She must have gone out while we were gone. But she should know to be back by now. I found these on the chest in your room. Her photograph of Angelo? She always carries that with her. And she left the bracelet and necklace he gave her. She always wears them. And her identity card was there too. Rodolfo, what could this mean? Why would she leave these? Go to the neighbors. See if anyone saw her leave. Sergio, take the scooter and go to the hospital as soon as you can. The hospital? It's possible she had some kind of accident. Call if she's there. And where are you going? To look for our daughter. Rodolfo knew that to confess his fears to Maria would only distress her more. He hurried to Ponte Garibaldi, a bridge over the Tiber River that had become a popular suicide spot. To his relief, there was no sign of Wilma. Rodolfo then made his way to the district police station to report Wilma's disappearance. The police tried to calm him, insisting that it was far too early to begin a search. Meanwhile, Maria had spent the last hour knocking on the doors of their neighbors, desperate for any clues to where Wilma had gone, but no one had seen her daughter that day. When Rodolfo returned to Via Tagliamento empty-handed, Maria was on her knees in the street, sobbing. Come home, Wilma. Even if you bring ten lovers, all is forgiven. Please, come home. Maria, what are you doing in the street? Come inside, please. Where is our daughter, Rodolfo? Where has she gone? We're going to find her, I promise. They were soon joined by Rodolfo's youngest brother, Giuseppe, who owned a car and had offered to contribute to the search. The brother spent the night patrolling the Roman streets for any sign of Wilma. Over the next two days, the Montessis grew more and more desperate for news. Wanda visited a fortune teller. Rodolfo sent a telegram to Wilma's fiancé, Angelo. The brief message read, Wilma missing, reason unknown. It was followed by a more alarming statement, suicide likely, come immediately. He visited the police headquarters, but again was dismissed with the statement that it was too early to worry. Rodolfo insisted that there had to be something the police could do. To his fury, the officer on duty responded by checking the log of prostitutes who had been rounded up the night before. In the midst of this hellish wait for answers, the family received one faint glimmer of hope. Wilma had taken her keys with her. They interpreted this as evidence that she had intended to return. Angelo arrived in Rome early on Sunday, April 12th. He and Rodolfo traveled yet again to the local police station. It was there that they saw the newspaper heading. The body of a young woman had washed up on the beach at Torvejanica. Father and fiance raced to the Institute of Forensic Medicine, the mortuary where the body had been taken. Prepare yourselves. I'm now gonna pull back the sheet. Oh, they've killed her. Oh, my poor Wilma. Do you recognize this woman? Yes, sir. She is my daughter. The family search was over. The body had finally been identified, but the mystery of how Wilma Montesi came to that lonely, windswept beach 
had just begun. Coming up, the authorities present their answer and are accused of a cover-up. And now, back to our story. On the morning of April 11, 1953, the lifeless body of a young woman was found on a beach near Torbionica, a quiet fishing village outside of Rome. Her skirt, shoes, and stockings were missing. She was soon identified as 21-year-old Wilma Montesi, a girl from the city with a respectable but modest background. Her father was a carpenter, and she was engaged to marry a policeman. But identifying the body brought a host of new questions, the most puzzling of which revolved around the location where she had been found. Torvayanica was a remote fishing village, nearly 20 miles from the Montesi's apartment on Via Tagliamento. It was a strange place for Wilma to go and would have been impossible to reach alone and on foot. Well, there was the possibility that currents had carried her body from another beach. Ostia, further up the coast, was more populated and reachable by train, though, as far as the family knew, Wilma had never used the city's public transportation before. Seeking answers and unwilling to wait for the police, the Montesi men drove to Torvionica Beach themselves. Rodolfo, Giuseppe, Sergio, and Angelo Giuliani piled into Giuseppe's Fiat and drove to the site where Wilma had been found. For hours, they drove up and down the coast, questioning everyone they encountered. They were slightly disturbed to learn that the secluded beach had a reputation as a popular spot where young couples from the city came to make love. Several of the locals had seen a woman matching Wilma's description in the area on the days before April 9th. More than one reported that she had been the passenger in a luxury vehicle driven by a young man. A mechanic had even helped the young couple when their vehicle, a brand new Alfa Romeo 1900cc, had gotten stuck in the sand. He remembered the driver as a 30-ish man with brown hair. When shown a picture of Wilma Montesi, he insisted that she looked just like the man's companion. The possibility of a mystery man contributed to the unsightly picture that was beginning to take shape. If Wilma had died on April 10th, as initially suggested, it would mean that she spent the night of April 9th away from home. Well, then there was the issue of the missing skirt, garters, and belt. Maria insisted that her daughter would never have removed the items in public, but the fact remained that they had not turned up. All of these elements threw doubt on the issue of Wilma's chastity, threatening to forever damage her honor and the respectability of her family. While the Montessis were desperate to know what had happened to their daughter, they were just as determined that her name not be dragged through the mud. And as it turned out, they were right to be concerned. The public was hungry for news of the girl who had been found on the beach, and the press responded eagerly. Newspapers and magazines speculated on what had brought the young woman to the secluded beach. Even more troubling than the suggestions of impropriety was the looming specter of suicide, which, while not uncommon, was heavily stigmatized. If Wilma had killed herself, she would not be allowed a Catholic burial. The Montesi family insisted that Wilma would not have killed herself and never would have allowed herself to be driven around by a strange man. Fortunately, a witness appeared who had offered a third theory. The family was visited by Rosa Passarelli, a 35-year-old clerk at the Ministry of Defense. 
Welcome. Please, sit down, Miss Passarelli. You said you had information about her daughter? That's right. I was going to go to the police first, but I thought you deserved to hear it yourselves. Please, tell us what you know. When I opened the paper this morning, I was surprised to see your daughter's face. I recognized her. You see, I saw her on Thursday evening, on the 5.30 p.m. train to Ostia. You see, Rodolfo, our daughter would never get into the car with a strange man. Those people on the beach must have seen someone else. Why would she go to Ostia alone? And so late? I wondered the same thing. The 5.30 is the last train to Ostia. She would not have been able to return by the same route. Miss Passarelli, I'm not sure what you're suggesting, but my daughter was very well adjusted. She was very well adjusted. Of course, Mrs. Montesi. I'm sure it would be best for everyone if this were determined to be an accident. But still, why go to Ostia alone? Papa? What is it, Wanda? I just remembered. A few weeks ago, Wilma was complaining about the way her new shoes were rubbing. I told her to see the pharmacist, but she'd read something that said salt water would help the irritation. There you have it. She must have gone to soak her feet, and she fell. It's a very long trip for a foot bath. Rodolfo, can't you leave well enough alone? Our daughter's death was a tragedy. A tragedy that could have happened to anyone. While the Montessis had essentially made up their mind on the matter, the authorities had not. Since the body was found over the weekend, the autopsy was not performed until April 14th. This is the autopsy of Wilma Montessi, age 21. Performing the autopsy will be myself, Dr. Froquet, attending coroner. I will be accompanied by Dr. Corelli. We will begin with an exterior examination, followed by an evaluation of the heart, lungs, and digestive organs. The subject is in exceptional condition, considering several hours in the water. Skin appears normal. No outward signs of bleeding or scarring. There is some superficial bruising. One on the left arm, the left thigh, and one on the right leg. Pupils, rigid. Severe rigidity in the fingers and toes. Moving on to the feet. No trace of eczema or rubbing, as indicated by the family. No indication of irritation of any kind. Scalpel? Thank you, Doctor. Making first incision. The stomach contains trace amounts of partially digested milk. Milk and uh, almonds, if I'm not mistaken. Perhaps the young lady enjoyed a gelato before going for a swim. The lungs contain significant amounts of sand and salt water, consistent with drowning. A drowning person would panic and swallow water quickly. These lungs took on water over an extended period. Suggesting the victim was unconscious at the time of death. Drugged? No traces of drugs or poison of any kind. Ah, look here. The heart. It's slightly smaller than it should be. Less effective at pumping blood to the brain. She would have been susceptible to fainting spells. We can now definitively say that the cause of death is drowning. Time of death? Approximately 7.30 p.m. on Thursday, April 9th. One of the most significant pieces of information was a new time of death. Dr. DiGiorgio, who had made the initial assessment on the beach, had believed that Wilma Montesi had drowned on April 10th. If that were true, it meant that Wilma had spent her last night away from home, an act that would have called her respectability into question. The coroner's new assessment determined that she died on April 9th, 
a mere two hours after she left the apartment, bolstering the family's theory that her death had been an accident. The next determination would go further to bolster the family's arguments for their daughter's chastity. The doctors determined that Wilma Montesi had not suffered sexual trauma and was, as her family had insisted from the start, a virgin. The family was relieved at the information and hopeful that at last their daughter would be allowed to rest in peace with her reputation intact. The press, however, had other plans. Commissioner Polito, a question for El Tempo. Quiet, please. We will begin as soon as there is quiet. On April 17th, only six days after Wilma's body was discovered, Police Commissioner Severio Polito delivered the press conference to a room full of clamoring reporters. On April 9th, shortly before 5.30 in the evening, Wilma Montesi left her family's apartment at number 76 Via Taliamento. She walked to the San Paolo station and boarded a train bound for Ostia. She intended to take a footbath in the ocean, which she hoped would soothe an irritation caused by her new shoes. Once she arrived, Wilma Montesi purchased a gelato and a postcard from a vendor. We can only assume she intended to send it to her fiancé, who she would have married in December. Then why did she leave his photograph and jewelry at home? After finding a secluded spot, Miss Montesi removed a few items of clothing. Her shoes, skirt, stockings, and suspender belt. Bit overkill for a footbath, eh? As she waded into the water, Wilma Montesi suddenly became ill and fainted most likely as a side effect of her menstrual cycle. She was pulled beneath the waves and drowned. Her body was carried down the coast by strong currents and eventually washed onto the beach at Torvionica. You expect us to believe this rubbish? This represents the state's official opinion on this matter. The case of Wilma Montesi is officially closed. Thank you. What are you trying to hide, Polito? Who are you lying for? We want the autopsy reports. Wilma Montesi was laid to rest in the Verano Cemetery in Rome. At her father's insistence, she was buried in the white dress intended for her wedding, a visible statement about her purity. The Montesis hoped that the controversy had been buried with her. But rather than squash the rumors and speculation, the official statement seemed only to add fuel to the fire. The press, public, and nearly everyone in Rome dismissed the official statement as fantasy. They questioned whether Wilma would have made such an arduous journey for a footbath, and if it was even possible that currents had carried her such a long distance. The sightings of the couple in the Alfa Romeo had been much closer to the beach where Wilma's body had been found, but the police did not seem to have made any effort to follow up on this lead which was rather unusual as there were only a few hundred of the luxury vehicles in Rome. And despite the determination that she was a virgin, the press and public had a hard time believing that a sexual encounter had not played a role in her death. Why, they asked, had she removed her skirt, stockings, and suspender belt just to dip her toes in the water? The suspender belt, an intimate garment used to hold up a woman's stockings, was of special significance. According to Wilma's family, she owned one of black satin, which she wore whenever she went out. To remove such an item in public would have been particularly daring, and yet the satin belt still had not turned up. Given all these contradictions and open questions, 
The police's decision to close the case so quickly seemed suspicious. Many began to wonder if there was a cover-up afoot. Such accusations were not unheard of or particularly unbelievable. Italy had only recently emerged from the grip of Mussolini's fascist government, and the police system had yet to undergo any substantial reformation. Many Italians lived under the assumption that the police served the politicians first and justice second. On May 4th, an article in Roma suggested that Commissioner Polito had deliberately halted the investigation at the request of some influential person. The next day, Polito received a call from none other than Mario Shelba, the interior minister of Italy. Polito. Severio, it's Shelba. Minister, to what do I owe the pleasure? To the incompetence of your department. This business with the Montesi case is getting out of hand. I assure you, Minister, we've put it to rest. That's what you call it? The press is having a field day. No one buys this foot-bathing business, and I don't blame them. Why on earth are you still pushing it? I, well, it's the account supplied by the family. You're making us look ridiculous, Polito. In an election year. Fix it. I promise I'll see to... Hello? Minister? The next day, the chief of police held another press conference, this time to insist that whatever had been said before, the investigation was definitely not closed. If he hoped that the announcement would put an end to the rumor-mongering, he would be sorely disappointed. The Montessi scandal had only just begun. Coming up... The Montesi scandal entangles one of the most powerful and respected families in Italy, and a bold young reporter uncovers an underworld of crime and corruption. Now, back to the story. On April 25, 1953, Commissioner Polito reopened the investigation into the death of Wilma Montesi, who had washed up on a beach near Torvajanica, Italy, a few weeks prior. He did not take the opportunity to offer any new information, theories, or suspects. But before long, the Roman press would supply their own. Rumors had already been percolating that some influential person had pressured the police to squash the case in the first place. Now, another rumor spread that a young blonde man had turned in Wilma's missing undergarments and clothing to the police. According to speculation, this unidentified man, the influential person who had caused the police to close the investigation, and the mysterious owner of the Alfa Romeo 1900 were all one and the same. Slowly, a name bubbled to the surface. It would link Wilma Montesi's death to the highest echelons of Italian politics. In 1953, the Christian Democrats were the party in power in Italy. Catholic to its core, the centrist party had risen to power in the wake of fascism thanks in part to support from both the Vatican and the United States government. The party leaders were virtually all elderly family men, most of whom attended church daily and steered clear of the public limelight in favor of quiet family life. They did not seem likely to cause controversy of any kind. And yet, in the spring of 1953, 
Attilio Piccioni, the Christian Democrat deputy and foreign minister of Italy, opened his newspaper to an article about the Montesi case and found his own name staring back at him. With a bit of unsubtle wordplay hinging on the fact that his last name was the Italian word for pigeons, it suggested that a member of his family was responsible for Wilma Montesi's death. Before he had even finished the article, the foreign minister was on his feet and reaching for his coat. Piero! Piero, stop that rocket! Dad, you've never come to a rehearsal before. We need to talk. Get rid of them. But we're practicing. We've got a big show at the Slam tonight. Now, Piero! All right, guys, let's take five. 32-year-old Piero was Attilio's youngest son and the black sheep of the family. To his father's chagrin, Piero had abandoned a promising law career to pursue a career as a jazz musician. While it did little to impress his father, he was relatively successful. His band, 013, frequently performed on the radio, and he worked irregularly as a film composer. Despite this, he had only recently moved out of his family home. When he wasn't performing, he could usually be found at one of the countless city bars or nightclubs that lined Via Marguda, the narrow street that had become famous as the center of Rome's bohemian scene. Broke artists and incognito movie stars danced to jukeboxes beneath the same roof, while dealers openly peddled marijuana and other illicit substances. Attilio had always feared that his son's lifestyle would bring scandal upon the family, but he never expected Piero to be connected to murder. All right, I got rid of him. What's this about, Dad? Read this. The well-known political personalities connected to the death of Wilma Montesi cannot disappear without a trace like carrier pigeons. Is that supposed to mean anything to me? Pigeons? Piccioni? They're talking about you! Suggesting that you had something to do with that girl's death. And just because it went over your head, you can be sure that everyone else will know exactly what they're getting at. It's a lie. I've never even met that woman. Of course it's a lie. The far right and the communists want to damage the party before the election and they're using you to do it. Because of your reputation. I already perform under a different name. What else do you want from me? I've just been to see Shelba. He thinks you should go see Tommaso Pavone, the chief of police. See if he can do something to have this article pulled. Pull the article? He ought to throw those journalists in jail. The Pachonis attacked the accusations head-on. Attilio loudly professed his son's innocence at every opportunity. Meanwhile, Piero aggressively went after the journalists who had connected him to the Montesi scandal. The first journalist brave enough to actually name Piero in connection with the Montesi scandal was Marco Sforza. Piero sued him for defamation, ultimately forcing him to retract the accusation. The move had its intended effect. Many of the city's journalists were intimidated and found it safest to stay away from the Montessi story altogether. There had, after all, been few recent leads, aside from the rumors of Piero's involvement. As summer dragged on, the case gradually disappeared from Roman newspapers. For a moment, at least, it seemed that this was the end. But the last word on the death of Wilma Montesi had not yet been written. In July of 1953, a 24-year-old reporter and magazine director named Silvano Muto 
was chasing a story about drug trafficking in Rome. He spent countless nights in the bars and clubs and Via Marguta, witnessing the drug use and hand-to-hand sales. It was there that he started to hear rumors that large quantities of drugs were being smuggled through a strip of coast between Ostia and Torvionica. His search for more information would lead to a young woman named Adriana Bisaccia. Hey, are you Adriana? That's right. You're Elio's friend? Silvano Mudo. What are you drinking? Same as you. Like so many women, Adriana had come to Rome in the hopes of being discovered as an actress. Her dreams had not exactly panned out. The 23-year-old paid rent by working as a nude model for artists. So I'm curious, what did Elio say about me? Just that you were a lot of fun and you had a good story to tell? Something about Ostia? Mm, that's a long story. Well, I've got all night. Yeah? How about a car? Do I have a car? You're talking to the owner of a Fiat 1900. But why do you ask? Mm, I haven't been to the beach in ages. What do you say we get out of this stuffy club? I'm game. Things could hardly have worked out better for the entrepreneurial young reporter. Adriana seemed extremely knowledgeable about the seedy world of Via Marguda and the wealthy, powerful men that occasionally brushed against it. As they drove to the shore, Adriana confirmed everything he had heard about the beaches south of Ostia. And then some. Silvano listened in awe as Adriana described how the wealthy and powerful people from the city came down to the shore to participate in hedonistic, drug-fueled sex parties. This is the craziest story I've ever heard. How did you get involved in this? My friend Claudia worked as a pusher for one of them. I'll never forget the party she took me to. There were ten or so of them, divided into couples, glassy-eyed and pale. I'd never been to an orgy before. After that, They invited me to another, and another. It was one of those where I met Wilma. Wilma? Wilma Montesi. You know, the girl they found on the beach. Wilma Mont... What are you doing? Going swimming. And so are you, if you want the rest of your story. Wait up. I didn't bring a suit. Oh well. On October 6th, 1953, Silvana Muto would run Adriana's story in his magazine, Atualita. The headline proclaimed, The truth behind the death of Wilma Montesi, the girl who could have been your sister, your daughter, your girlfriend. Without naming those involved, the article would cleanly and clearly describe the events that directly preceded and resulted in Wilma Montesi's death. It read as follows. At 7.30 on Thursday evening, Mr. X and Wilma are together. They are not alone. Three other people are with them. Time passes and they begin to smoke drugged cigarettes of a type whose dangers the girl is unfamiliar with, only with the pleasure that they bring. The girl smokes too much. The drug starts to take effect. Suddenly, she falls senseless to the ground. Efforts to revive her are useless. She no longer gives signs of life. Suddenly, the four people realize that they have a dead body on their hands, and the position in Italy of one of the four does not allow a scandal. The body must be got rid of. It is too embarrassing. The girl is dressed, but in the hurry, her suspender belt cannot be found. 
the skirt is left off. Perhaps they think its absence will support the accident theory, or perhaps because in the confusion of the moment, no one remembers where it is. Dressed in this way, the body is bundled into the car. The sea is close and the hypothesis of an accident can seem plausible. Soon Wilma is in the sea. She will be found some time later at Torvionica. Mr. X knows many things and holds completely in his hand those who might talk. Influential people are set in motion so as to deal with the matter slowly in silence. In this way, the Montesi case is covered in silence, a strange web of silence. Silvano Muto could not have been prepared for the repercussions of his article. The inflammatory story had opened the eyes of the Roman public to a side of their city that had long been hidden. It exposed an underworld of vice and hedonism populated by the wealthy and powerful. They would not take his accusations lightly. In the next episode, more witnesses come forward with stories of crime and corruption amongst Rome's elite. Meanwhile, authorities struggle to separate truth from rumor as they try to discover what happened to Wilma Montesi. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of the case of Wilma Montesi. You can find more episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Kenny Hobbs. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Andrew Kelleher and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Mike Capozzi, Susanna Corrington, Jerry Courtney Osteen, Harris Markson, Steve Pinto, and Dan Velasquez.